Well, that was the opening music to Farewell to Manzanar, released in March of 1976 on NBC Television. This is a television movie. I think it might be the first television movie we've reviewed. Um, what do you think, uh, Bob? I think so. Um, I was just I just trying yeah. to remember. We haven't done that one that was Steven Spielberg's where the guy was being chased all over by the mad trucker. Remember that? Oh, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> but no, this yeah. is the first one that I recall. No reason not to do some if they're, if they're well done, which this one is. There's a, there, the, the Steven Spielberg one was really good, and then there's another one where um, this, this old coot living out in the desert discovers this really bizarre skeleton and calls like this uh, university professor to come out and look at it, and then they get attacked by these uh, creatures that live out in the desert. It's pretty good. I, I have to remember the name of it. Gargoyles. Oh, it's called Gargoyles. I've heard the, I don't know if I've I probably have seen it. They had these um, uh, movies of the week on. I, I was always thinking they were ABC, but apparently NBC did the same thing. Long before we had all the cable channels that we have now. And streaming yeah, services. Oh, yeah. yeah. These were big events, so in a lot of ways it would be... Uh, transferable to the big screen pretty easily no oh, definitely definitely and we're doing this movie as a kickoff to our series of films uh, starring people of color and we're planning to do bridge to the sun and mystery street and then probably one other one that we're still trying to figure out so i have a suggestion on that one i'm going to be watching it this weekend called exiles a semi a, a semi oh, do right. documentary about uh, uh, a young a group of young uh, Native American first peoples living in Bunker Hill, living in the Bunker Hill That's area right. of Los you Angeles. That. So you I'll let you know that. how that how that one plays. I have not watched it yet. Finding Bridge to the Sun and Mystery Street's been a bit of a challenge. So I'll I'll keep you posted on my where I'm finding that to <laughs> finding those to watch. Oh, okay. I know that. Um, uh, fortunately, I was able to watch uh, Myst uh, Mystery Street on Turner Classic Movies, and I think I believe Bridge to the Sun is available on either network Netflix or Amazon, or maybe it was YouTube. <laughs> There's <laughs> one of those. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from sunny North Bend today. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles, welcoming everyone back to Classic Movie Reviews and our uh, discussion of Farewell to Manzanar, which was written by uh, a woman who spent her youth in the camp, and the co-author was her husband. Uh, and their names are, he asked. Uh, well, his name was James Houston. And hers was Jean Wakatuski Houston. Wakatuski Houston, yep. And I like the way the film opened where it showed the couple, the two of them coming back to Manzanar with their children to sort of revisit what was a, had to be a horrible experience for her when she was about seven, either seven or nine years old. And they've co-authored uh, other books as well. Yeah, so that was supposed to be her and her husband. Yes. I guess it was, I guess it was an autobiography, right? Yeah. In a way, yeah. And and what, I was struck by the fact that when they were driving there, that was filmed 
on the highway that goes to Manzanar. You could tell because of the mountain. Yeah, because those were the Alabama yeah, hills, Yeah, and right? the Sierras in the background, I tell you. It just, going there makes a whole world of difference for me as I watch this movie and the realism. Yeah, I should mention also, yeah, I should mention also that on Patreon, at Tier 3, we have a Part 1 to this uh, discussion where we focus more on what was going on in the country uh, around these uh, camps. And uh, so if you're interested in, in hearing more, go check us out over there. I echo your uh, comment because um, a lot of the detail about what how these were how these camps were established and the the volume of people that were in them would be in that podcast yeah so i think today we'll focus more on the movie probably um but we'll talk some about some of those other things going on um but i i you had asked me about the music and you said I, you couldn't remember the music i fortunately just watched it last night so it's fresh in my mind and it opens up with this really moody music that just fits perfectly the, the, the scene of the little Volkswagen Vanagon driving down the highway. And it got those mountains in the background. And then during the actual kind of flashback to uh, them being taken to Manzanar uh, and while they're at Manzanar, there's some music that is, is more like that, but then there's some that has a Japanese fl- flavor or... or uh, influence to it. I thought was really well done it really did help support the mood and the the emotions of the movie as it was progressing and then were you surprised that later in the movie probably halfway through or more uh the uh the teenagers are dancing to uh, glenn miller and sw- swing music yeah <laughs> all you jitterbugs <laughs> all right is everyone having a great time tonight all right this is ray nakamoto with the music and here's another song for all you jitterbuggers here at Manzanar. Everybody, come on! There's a, there's a wonderfully reconstructed and, and uh, open uh, around, throughout the year uh, museum and historical facility there. And they have the stage and everything recreated <clears throat> where the musical events took place and where the dance took place. It's... it's uh, I would, I would recommend anyone listening, if they can make it to Manzanar, to, to take a look at that, because it really struck me how accurately depicted in the film the uh, facilities at Manzanar were from the very beginning up until they had time to make it more livable, especially those, those uh, barracks buildings that they were thrown into at the beginning. There are two of those that are reconstructed on site at Manzanar, and it was like deja vu when I saw the film. 
It looked just like that in the early days of their internment. Yeah. Well, and I thought that they did a really good job of reconstructing those scenes for the movie, too. Because um, they, they, any of the wide shots that they did of the camp were miniatures. You could kind of tell. And I, and I noticed that they had a, a film credit to Ansel Adams at the end. And I think they were using some of his photographs as back backdrops for the miniature shots oh okay uh but then when but when they were actually like running around in the camp and and doing the filming it looked yeah it really looked like they were there and they did a good job of making it look um like full scale size i really think the movie could 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 uh, be redone with very little change from what we saw with this film from 44 years ago uh, Nancy and I visited Man- the last time we visited Manzanar was in early March uh, three years ago and you get out of the car and it's amazingly uh, unpleasant because it's cold the altitude is quite high there was a wind blowing dust blowing around I can't even imagine what that had been like when these people were uh taken off the bus and put into these places and we walked out to one of the reconstructed barracks and uh it's just it's just an amazing experience that no film probably could capture but i thought they did an excellent job in doing what they could to bring this to life well they they set it up really well too because the the film opens with kind of uh what would have been at the time sort of a modern day setting of them of the the daughter in the film going back to Manzanar to sort of reconcile her feelings about what had happened there. And she was bringing her family with her. And then it flashes back to the early forties where the, this family is just really well connected with the um, community. They've got a lot of friends, uh, both Japanese descent and other, other folks. So just uh, having some fun at a birthday party, I think is one of the scenes and, and then they show uh, them getting ready to go out fishing, and the father and son are joking around. And We never knew how long they'd be gone. A few days, a week. It depended on the fish. Hey, Richie, go down and check the stuffing box. Oh, why do I always have to go below? Because that kind of work is good for a college boy. Keep you smelling like a fisherman. Okay. They do a really good job of building those characters and building those relationships and the the cast is like really really good set of actors i mean they they some of these folks have been doing tv and movies for decades yes yes very well known um i wanted to back up just for a second and give special credit to the director john corty who uh, along with the production company universal studios Put this film together. He had uh, he did almost 20, 29 or thirty different films, and they were usually social uh, commentary types of films. One that I've watched is called *In the Line of Fire*, the Morris Dees story, another television offering about Norris, uh, Morris Dees and the setting up of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So, but yeah, no, you're you're right about that. He also he. He also did the Ewok Adventure TV TV <laughs> yes. movie. <laughs> yes, that's on my list. That's, that's Which right. is 
I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he's still he's still uh, working in the field. Yeah, the uh, the, uh, the the so many people in this film we've seen in other movies. Um, Karate Kid. Yeah, Pat, Pat Morita Marino, was yeah. in this movie. Mako, who was in uh, uh, the Conan movies, he was. That's what I know him from with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, I'm also remembering one of the f- actors was in um, Star Trek, and I've now lost who that was. But they, they, the point, I guess, is that they've been in a, a lot of different films. And this actor that I can't remember was in Star Trek: The Motion Picture from 1979. But they really bring a lot of authenticity to the film and uh, really portray what was going on in, in such an excellent manner. Uh, but back to your comment about this, this, the setup for the film, it, it does really indicate, you know, they're, they're just living the average American life, a close-knit family, and uh, it suddenly changes after Pearl Harbor. I'm thinking of that time when um, the father and son are going out fishing and then they boats turn around to come back and and no one can figure out why they've come back. All kinds of, they're thinking of different reasons for that. And it turns out, I think it was because of Pearl Harbor. And that changes everything in their life. Well, and they even even before the government gets involved, I think they they know that this is not going to be good for them. And there was a really heartbreaking scene where the dad, played by Yuki Shimoda, uh, and he, everybody refers to him as Ko, mm-hmm. Ko, uh, is 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 looking at this uh, flag, this Japanese flag that had I think his father had given to him, and it was really quite old, and it had a lot of sentimental value. Not not that he was loyal to the Japanese government, but just that, you know, there is something that it was in his family and he had to throw it in the fire to, to burn it up because if, if the government found it, they would think that he was loyal to the Japanese government. December 7th, 1941 was as frightening for us as it was for everyone in America. I had never seen my mother and father so angry and so sad at the same time. Pure linen, Mama. My aunt Toyo gave it to me when I was sailing from Japan. It was 35, 40 years ago. It was pretty old then. A stupid waste. Did you burn the flag? Because I'm a fisherman. Because I have a boat. 
shortwave radio. Even my tide tables will be suspected of being secret code. You know that the times were such that really there was a lot of anger about that. I, he was a strong person too. You know, at the beginning, he he just I, I was I was impressed and and really liked the fact that he he had such dignity. When the fe- the federal agents yes, came to get yes. him, and he he wouldn't let them like touch yes, him or push him exactly. around. Yeah, I, I I thought that was so well portrayed. Well, and well, and I think that's really really excellent for the film too, in the script and and the development of that character. Because later, about two thirds of the way through the movie, he's just a broken man. Yeah, you know he he's becoming an alcoholic, and he he basically gets in a fight with his best friend and then he gets in a fight with his wife and 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 his best friend confronts him and says Ko, i hear what others have been saying about you but believe me i don't listen to them in my eyes you're still a man of good background a man of great influence i know in japan your family were all of samurai class if you speak out People in this block will listen to you. <laughs> what is there to speak out about? We have to resist this loyalty oath. Is that your clever idea? That all of us should write no, no? Refuse to fight and refuse allegiance? It's the only way to stop it. It's the only way for all of us to end up behind bars. Real bars. You think this camp's bad? I have seen worse camps. And there are things much worse than what I have seen. If we vote together, we can call their bluff. You have been in this country almost as long as me, Takashi. You still don't know anything about America. Are you afraid, Wakatsuki? I'm not yet crazy. I thought you were samurai. I thought you believed in honor, in courage. Get out of my house! Get out! But that was just so heartbreaking to see what had, what he had gone through. And he has a great line about how Manzanar isn't as bad as what they're thinking it is because he's been someplace much worse, and he knows that there are places even worse than that. You know that oh yes, that I do. Line? That's when he gets back from. Uh, they sent him to uh, Fort Lincoln outside of Bismarck, North Dakota. And we really don't know too much about what happens there, but I think he's referring to that as, as perhaps other places uh, that, he's, that he's experienced. That whole thing uh, in his lifetime uh, ended his life. He, he died 10 years after the camps were closed. Uh, and I think it shortened his life. Well, and, there's a, and, the, and, and the narrator who is the, I guess would have been the author of the book, you know, that, her voice... Uh, says that she thinks that he actually died at Manzanar and then he yeah. was just sort of like this shell of a person for 10 years afterwards. And something that I that I, I hadn't thought about until the movie was this idea that um, even after they were released, some of the people didn't really have anywhere to go and and were just kind of hanging out at the camp because they, they were either afraid to, to go someplace because they'd heard about people being lynched or shot uh, and and they mention a couple of those incidents in the movie, 
but also they they didn't really have any place to go back to they they didn't have like he had a fishing boat but the government seized it so he didn't have his fishing boat anymore he probably didn't have a place to live so it was just like they were just ripped out of society put into this camp and then were just set adrift when the when the whole thing was shut down what what's what's well done about the film too is it it personalizes it with a, a small group of people with he he being the lead but this was replicated tens of thousands of times with i believe there were 117,000 Japanese interned in the US another 21,000 in Canada and uh, others in uh, Peru Chile and up and down the west coast but it it meant more to me watching how it affected this family uh and and um the other thing I found interesting is that over roughly two-thirds of the people that were interned of Japanese uh, ancestry were U.S. citizens. They weren't, uh, they weren't here on any kind of special visa or green card or anything like that. They were, they were citizens. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and uh, the character that Mako plays, Fukimoto, uh, he gets on the bus in, in San Francisco and he's wearing his World War I uniform because he fought in world war one and, and was decorated and then he has this uh outburst on the bus saying hey did you hear about tatsono tried to join the army we wouldn't take him in l.a so he went back east to join why does he want to join the army yeah he thought he could help his family they're going into a camp anyway <laughs> take me volunteers when i was 19 Two years combat duty. Now look at what they do to me. You mean that's your uniform? You really were in the Navy. Damn right. World War One. Five stripes. Medals. And they didn't question my slat eyes then. You don't look American to me. <laughs> I'm just as American as that bus driver. I was born here. I fought for this country. I paid my taxes. Oh, so <laughs> What's the matter with you people? Don't you realize what they're doing to us is outrageous? And then he has another um, speech that's really powerful later when he's at the, in the camp. But Fukimoto, you can't take over here. This is a public hearing. Yeah. If it's a public hearing, then it's my turn. You listen. Joe Takahashi wants to hear grievances. It's too late for grievances. I'm through with the administration of this camp. I am through with the government, and I tell you why. I've been a citizen of this country all my life. I used to love this country. I tried very hard to be a good American, but I see now that this country doesn't want me. It doesn't want any of us. They have used Pearl Harbor as excuse to take our land, our home, and then they put us here in prison as if we were the thieves. And before this prison, my mother, my father, and I were thrown in horse stalls, still reeking of manure. Horse stalls. My mother came out of there paralyzed from a stroke. She can no longer talk. We carry her now. 
How can we deal with a government that does that to our people? Um, you know, he he was like, "What are we going to put up with this?" And I think there was this resignation. You could you could feel it in the way that they set that scene up. Of well, what what can we do? What are we supposed to do? You know, we're kind of stuck. I was I was really impressed by that when he when he showed up and he was in his uniform, his full uniform, and that uh, that military yeah. guy that was getting him on the bus looked at him like, "What is this?" I wondered what he was thinking. It gave him a moment it of pause, sure did. didn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, I, I like Richard playing played by James Sato, but anyway, their their son was saying, you know, how can they do this to us? Why why aren't they doing this to the Italians and the Germans? And and the response back was, well, have you looked in the mirror? It's because we look like this. Exactly, exactly. There was um, there was another really interesting part of this that that came out uh, Pat Mor- Morita was taking pictures with that with that homemade built camera that camera was so cool and he, he built, built it, it himself yeah. in the and camp and at the end of it yeah. the administrator camp basically says you know take all the pictures you want this is a hero this your camera uh, yes it is did you make it here in camp all but the lens nice job where'd you find the mahogany Scrap pile. Where'd you get the film? Mr. Eastman. You know, the records here show that this camera's been confiscated from you three times. Once since I got here, twice before that. Each time we take it back and put it away somewhere, it seems to disappear. Think that might happen again? Possibly. Well, Mr. Zenihiro, I'm pretty busy these days. I really don't want to take any more time with that kind of game, so there would seem to be only one solution. I can't destroy something made this well. So I guess I'll just have to let you go ahead and take pictures of whatever you want. I don't really think there's anything going on here now that shouldn't be shown to people on the outside one way or another anyway. And Mr. Zenihiro, if you're going to record things for posterity, make sure you get it all. I have heard the sound of laughter here on occasion. Well, fast forward to like late 1990s, early 2000. Here in California, there was a show that was on frequently, like hundreds if not thousands of films, uh, TV shows with Huell Hauser. Who was a very well-known yeah. <laughs> local uh, personality throughout the state? He did one whole episode on that camera and the persons that were at the camp. He was out at Manzanar, and he had they actually used that camera from the, the in the movie. That's cool to take pictures of the people there. Yeah, that's really cool. And I looked him up on YouTube, and and I didn't see that episode unfortunately. But there is a little clip of him talking about Alice, who was one of the mm-hmm. singers, mm-hmm. and. And they showed that in the in the movie, uh, and she was a really good singer. And the the music teacher Lou Frizzell was the the person who played that per, that character in the movie was the actual person who was at Manzanar. Yeah, and he's an actor. He he went on and he's, and he's an actor. Yeah, it's it. 
It, it just makes the movie that much more uh, special and realistic. Well, it, what another thing that makes it special and realistic to me is that some of these actors were in in camps. Like Pat Morita was in mm-hmm. a camp. Um, I, I I didn't look up all, all of these folks, but I, I I know for sure he was. And um, there's a there's a great clip on on YouTube which um, I'll link to, where he talks about that. Um, so just imagine having gone through that as a young person and then come back, you know, uh, 30, 30 years later and no, 40 30, years, 30, 30, yeah, no, 30, 30 years. years, 30 years later and, and being, you know, starring in, in a, in a movie about that. that had to be a difficult assignment, no doubt about it because of the, the, the memories that it would produce and, and, and all of that. It's, um. I, well, I guess to back up to the plot, we pretty much, I think, talked about that. But I think we would probably be uh, seeing the same kind of treatment at the other camps that were established around the West as people were brought in. And the camps were not even finished when they showed up at Manzanar, and that's probably true at the other places. They had to do a lot of the work just to make it so that they could live in them and, and not get typhoid or other kinds of diseases they had open sewers and it was a, it was a mess and uh, they turned they turned them into livable communities over three years in this enclosed uh, place yeah the Nobu McCarthy plays the author Jean uh, Wakatsuki and she has a, a line kind of near the beginning where because the the sewage was was running out into open trenches you know there wasn't even pipes yeah. for the sewage to go into and and, and it really brought home how terrible those conditions were. But then fast forward to near the end of the movie when they're showing those photos of what it was like near the end of the camp. And, and the narrator says... Manzanar had become a unique community and Mr. Zenihiro and his students recorded it on film. In some ways, it was a typical American town, but with a lifestyle all its own. They had baseball games, they had parades, they had, um, you know, dances. They had all these things that made it feel probably more like a, a normal town. I think I think it changed a lot when the military backed out of taking charge of the administration. They brought in civilian people because in the movie they portray in, their, in the first third the uh, the revolt that, that many of the people in the camps had and the military uh, suppressed it with with arms and and soldiers and that that was a true depiction of what happened there too and that's what yeah and several people and that's were when killed they changed yeah. the administration and, and uh, a, a side note that i found interesting that uh, i we mentioned in the other podcast 
Milton Eisenhower, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's brother, was originally ahead of ahead of the uh, of the whole relocation effort, but he only lasted in the job like two months, and he left because he just didn't believe in it as a, as an approach. And I found it interesting that that he had done that. I'd, I'd never I'd never known that that he had that role. And credit to him for leaving because he he just couldn't deal with it. Do you remember right at the beginning of the movie, um, there was a radio announcer who was talking about, it was after the bombing, and, and he was saying things like, The Census Bureau tells me there are some 90,000 Japs in California alone. Now, some of these people would not cause us any trouble at all, but plenty of them would, if they thought they could get away with it. Many of them are fine citizens, but others have been sent to Japan for schooling and for military training. Most of them are under domination by Japan to some degree, which makes all persons of Japanese ancestry potentially dangerous, at least until we can find some foolproof way of distinguishing between the wolves and the rabbits. Do you think it's merely an accident a Jap farmer outside Ventura happens to have his strawberry field lined up right next to the Ventura airstrip with one piece of land shaped like an arrowhead and pointing directly toward the runway? And it was just so, like, reminiscent of things that we've heard over the last you know four years or in other times as well but just sort of like there's bad people out there we've got to protect ourselves from them and there's you know there's absolutely no proof that that was true but it was this racist rhetoric that was getting people stirred up and and as the family was getting on the bus there in san francisco and their two friends who were uh i think they were yeah white friends came to see them off and and I was just thinking, like, what, what would it, what would it have taken to prevent this from happening? You know, like, what, what could have people have done? And even, you know, now, what can we do to keep this from happening again? But it, it was like this. It felt like this um, avalanche of of racism that just swept over these people, and it was like they were all just swept up in it, and. and I don't know what would have been able to stop it. Yeah, that's the whole... I think that's what makes the movie such a valuable one to be shown. I know it's been shown in like over 8,000 classrooms uh, as a part of a teaching experience about what happened uh, and, and, and should continue to be. It's almost one that should be replayed every, every so often for people to see it today. I almost wish it was like... I wish I wish it could be restored and like cleaned up and and the vibrancy of the image brought back and and then just made free to watch, you know, like, and I think it is, it is available on YouTube, but it, it gets taken down and then reposted. So the link that I posted in the part one episode or that I'll post in this episode might not, might not be active, but just search on YouTube for farewell to Manzanar. Um, but I, I would love to have, either like this be remade or restored or something. I, I want to mention just a couple of, just a brief note about Italians and Germans so we don't lose that. Um, there were Italians that were interned. There were about 3,200 that were arrested. Now, these were res- resident aliens, and 300 of those were interned. And Germans, there were about 11,000 arrested, and 5,000 were interned. And that was a mix of both naturalized citizens, much as these people, and resident aliens. So I didn't want us to 
overlook the fact that there was some of that, but the scale and scope of it was was nothing like it was with the Japanese. The thing that happened in the film, I thought they did a nice job on too, was how it sort of transitioned from the early days when it was really nothing more than a camp out in the wilderness into a city and town. And then the new administration that came in had a different approach, which was which was more enlightened, if you can say that, about a place that's interned all these people behind barbed wire. Um, and then they started, the government started to change its philosophy, and you could leave the camp, I think this was in like 1943, if you agreed to, to join the military and fight. But, but then they had that loyalty oath thing. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. You heard about the loyalty oath. Loyalty? Somebody worried about loyalty? Listen to this. Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty, wherever ordered? Yes or no? Who? Me? Somebody asking me this? They're asking all of us, Cole. Everybody in camp over 17 has to fill out this form. Listen to the next question. Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor, yes or no? You know, it gives me a strange feeling to be suddenly sought after by the same government who denied me citizenship for 35 years. That's just it, Cole. You know what this is. The final insult. They pen us up like cattle and then ask us to declare our loyalty. If I were a free man, I would be proud to declare my loyalty. But now... Now you come here to tell me what we should do about it? George Takei talks about that in one of his interviews, and he his family said no to both those questions, and they were sent to an even worse camp that had three layers of barbed wire fence and a tank patrolling outside of the fences. Because, say, if you said yes to these two questions on this form, you were basically saying that you would fight for the U.S. and that you forswore your allegiance to the Japanese Empire. Well... That's 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 really messed up. If you were born in America, or even if you'd come over here and, and had lived here for a long time, you you don't have an allegiance to the Japanese Empire, you know. So you, what what is there to forswear? And and they gave this form to everybody from like seventeen year old kids and you know girls up to eighty year old mm-hmm. men and women. And what are, what are they going to say? Yes, I'm I'm willing to take up arms to fight for the United States. Not to mention that. They're in a camp, you know, so they're supposed to swear allegiance to the U.S. to go off and fight while they're being, like, put in a concentration camp. It's like, yeah. Looking back at it from today, it's just so unbelievable. But in in my lifetime, the the, uh, loyalty of things uh, were, were still in existence. And I don't know if they are today or not, maybe not, but... Even into the 60s and early 70s, there were some jobs 
that people were required to sign a loyalty oath that they were not a member of a foreign power or communist or something like that. Uh, the other thing that struck me is that I've done some reading about World War One, and there was, and we saw that East of Eden film. There was that uh-huh. same vitriol and and hatred of the Germans, burning burning stores yeah. and yep. and whatnot. It's just, and then after nine eleven, all that went on then. It's really hard to manage and control. Well, and then what's going on today on, on yeah. our southern border with the, the, the camps and kids being put in, in camps. And, you know, from what I've read and what I've seen in video and, and pictures, the conditions there are, are really not much better than what the conditions were at Manzanar when they got there. You know, they've got no heat. They've got no enough. They don't have enough space. They don't have enough clothing. They don't have health care, really. Uh, it's not hygienic. And so whether or not these people were U.S. citizens, it's still wrong to put them into camps like this. And it's I, and I believe that it's wrong to put those people in camps uh, down at the southern border. Another reason why I wanted to talk about this movie was because I think it's relevant to what's going on today as well. Oh, yeah. That, that's what makes it so worthwhile to, to watch and talk and talk about how they how they wound these down. Is it too clearly presented in the film? And I, I myself, having read about it, it sort of was a hit and miss winding down. Some people left to go into the military. Some were allowed to leave, and I'm not quite sure uh, how that occurred or where they could go. Uh, little by little, they sort of changed. And then there were some people, didn't, like you say, didn't want to leave because they had no place to go. They'd been yeah. there for three and a half yeah, years. Uh, <laughs> on, on a lighter note, toward the end of the film, when he comes to the camp in that dil- dilapidated jalopy car, <laughs> I thought, yeah. where in the world did he find that? <laughs> he must have gone into Lone Pine and paid twenty nine ninety five for that car. <laughs> and off they go. It barely could. could they run. Run. But it ran well enough to go on a joyride through the through the the fields around. And that the sure camp. looked like they were filming that at Manzanar when they were driving around. Oh, I bet they were. I bet they were. It's a tough movie. It's a tough period to to review. Just because it's it's so relevant now as it was then. Have we missed any high points? I feel like we've covered things i i do i do think they they show the transition yeah i think we covered some of the high points there was an interesting dynamic going on in the camp it looked like and this was what led up to that riot or or part of it anyway um it was it was before the riot i believe but they there was this idea that that some of the people in the camp were working with the government and, and giving them information yes and uh, Frank Nishi was played by Frank Abe, was accused of working with the government, and the, he got the crap kicked out of him by a few people, and was in the hospital. And uh, then a group of men, well, it was quite a large group of people actually wanted to get him, <laughs> you know, and they marched up to the hospital with torches, and demanded that they they be let in to to get frank and so the, the, this idea that even even within the camp you know the, there were there was a lot of dynamics happening it wasn't like this was one solid block of of 
thinking or people. And and there was a great speech by uh, Co about how he, if he says no to those two questions on the form, he wants it be, to be known that it, it's him that's doing it. It's not a it's not block sixteen that's voting altogether to say no. I have kept my silence for many weeks. I speak out now because a great mistake is about to be made. One that is an insult to my right of choice. You can answer no, no, if you wish. But Takahashi wants us to vote as a block, like animals in a herd. I want my vote known as Wakatsuki Ko's choice, not Block 16's choice. I do not want my future determined by a group vote. I think there was just as much a diverse opinion on what was going on within that camp as you could find almost in any group. So I think that was a, that was really well portrayed in the movie, and it it definitely made it feel more like real right I, I just thought the writing was so well done and the directing was so well done and the acting was just top-notch and this movie could easily have been released into the theaters it's amazing the quality of it uh, for a TV movie in 1976 I couldn't agree more one other thing that we missed is that when Mako is talking about what happened to his mother and dad when they were arrested and they were thrown oh, into yeah. the mm-hmm. into the horse horse uh, area the the area where the horse barn and they they were in hay and and manure and they had that they had no idea why they were there that was one of the highlight uh highlight parts of the movie for me he did an excellent job and he became one of the leaders of the re- resistance to the whole camp idea he was so good he was that was such an emotional speech man that was so good and uh, almost every one of the lead actors in this i've seen in in other kinds of films for for example uh cole had a role in a movie from 1956 anti-mame which is a musical with rosalind russell i mean and then to see him in these films it's they you could tell that they all believed in and were really into into making this film because i'm sure it was made on a limited budget for television and a lot of these actors and actresses were, were TV, where they were primarily in TV yes, movies yes. and shows. But, but a lot of them, I mean, you look at Mako, or no, you look at uh, Yuki Shimoda, who played Ko. I mean, it's just like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through his list of credits. It's a or lot. The, or Pat um, Marita, yeah, he was in a lot of film. So, So, yeah, really good movie. Really, really happy that we watched this one. I give it uh, a 10 in terms of the message and the quality and all, yeah. Uh, I, I sort of discount the, the uh, special effects, you know, the, the camps set up and, and some of the models and all that. That's just, I think that's a reflection of the limited budget. But for me, it's an absolute 10. And I would hope that everybody that listens to our podcast and knows anybody else that uh, would be interested would watch that movie or this movie. Totally agree on all those points. I I would I give it a ten as well, and um, it should be required watching in in schools in the United States. I think. Did you mention to me that uh, the grandchildren had seen, either seen this or seen similar classroom? 
But they they learned about the internment of the Japanese, but I don't know that they watched. I don't think that they watched this movie. I'm sure that it was more like a a section of of their you know U.S. history uh, class. But you know at least they at least they learned about it because you know it would be easy to just sweep this under the under the rug, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, even today there are people that uh, a fair number of people who don't think the Holocaust existed. I mean, it's, yeah, that boggles it, my mind. Of course, yeah. we also have a group that thinks the Earth is flat. So, um, well, with that, what's uh, what's what's up next? Okay, uh, well, Bridge to the note. Sun is that our next Bridge to the Sun is our next film or Mystery Street? Yeah, Bridge to the Sun is up next. Well, that was our review of Farewell to Manzanar, and coming to you from Spring Lake, North Bend, where the birds are singing and the flowers are coming out. I think they're a little bit early, but. Anyway, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching. The bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended the Second World War and brought our time at Manzanar to an end. The bombings also erased my father's past and in a symbolic way, the few hopes he had for the future. He lived for 10 more years after the camp closed, trying to make a comeback, but never did. My father's life really ended at Manzanar. In a strange way, my own began there, shaped by the barbed wire of those fences and scarred by a sense of guilt over a crime I never committed. I didn't understand that until the day we made our pilgrimage. In the intervening years, I'd gone to college, married, and raised a family. I kept my years in camp from them, just as I kept them for myself afraid of remembering old feelings. But as we drove away, something in the rising dust reminded me of how my father always found a way to confront and defy that kind of pain. I remembered how he finally chose to leave Manzanar in his own style.
took me 30 years to reach the point where I could face all that had happened to us at Manzanar, to find pride where there seemed to be only shame and humiliation, to say what you can only say when you have finally come to know a place. Farewell. Recording. Da da. And looks like it's using the right microphone, so that's good. Oh, I I love my setup here. When I get behind all this stuff, it feels like I have this little. I'm in sort of a bomb shelter with my speakers, and I'm all closed in. A, a, a bunker. bunker. You're in a in a podcasting bunker. Yeah. 